We're continuing on in Acts chapter 4 this morning, beginning at verse 23. Being let go, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. So when they heard that, they raised their voices to God with one accord and said, Lord, You are God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. Who by the mouth of your servant David have said, Why did the nations rage and the people plot vain things? The kings of the earth took their stand, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against His Christ. For truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together, to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. Now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word by stretching out your hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they assembled together was shaken. And they were filled all with the Holy Spirit. And they spoke the Word of God with boldness. And being let go, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. Upon being released, if you were imprisoned and then released, where's the first place you would go? What's the first thing you would think of? For most people, the answer would be, I'm going home. I'll go home first. But upon being released, Peter and John went immediately to what is given in the text as their companions. Now, if you have a New King James, you'll notice that companions here is in italics. So therefore, this is a word that was added by the translators trying to give a greater understanding of what was being uh, brought forth from the Greek to the English. One could easily think this meant that they came to the other disciples. But we have to remember that now between Acts 2, Acts 3, and Acts 4, there's at least 8,000 people who have come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. People proclaiming faith in Christ. So a church had been formed. And the language here that is being used is very similar to what John writes in John chapter 1 in verses 11 through 13. They went to their own. When they were released from the prison, it says literally, they went to their own. Now, companions in there, I don't think is a good choice because I think it confuses what's going on. Remember what John said about Christ. He came to what? His own. But his own didn't receive him. But now here, 
Peter and John have come to their own. Who are their own? The church, the people who have come to believe in Christ. They have this kind of spiritual, emotional, and other bond. And so what follows here is not the prayer of disciples. It's not a prayer of, of five or six men. It is the prayer of the whole church. The prayer will end the sequence of, a sequence of events that began with the healing of the man who was born crippled. And Peter and John certainly made haste to get to the church to inform them of all that had taken place. But also to inform them, first of all, of their release. Because no doubt, while they were in prison, there was much prayer being offered by the believers that they would be released. And sometimes we see in the book of Acts, because it portrays everything as it really is, there were times that people prayed for the release of one of the imprisoned believers and were surprised when the believer showed up. And that's like us. Sometimes we pray and we get an answer. Wow, I got an answer. When you come to, Christ, to, to the Lord in the name of Christ, you will always get an answer. It may not be the one you want. It may not be the one you're looking for. And it may not be in the time that you expect, but you're always going to get an answer. The report immediately issues a time of prayer. Notice in verse 24, So when they heard that, they, they raised their voice to God with one accord, and said, Lord, You are God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them who by the mouth of Your servant David has said, and then they quote Psalm 2, but they, when they heard it, they raised their voice to God with one accord. They were of one mind, one heart, being led by one Spirit. And perhaps... Only one spoke, or maybe a group of them spoke. But what was being brought forth, what was being spoken, was what every single one of them had on their hearts. It was the sentiment of the whole church. And as we look at this prayer, there's two aspects of it I'd like to bring to you. First would be the, the content of the prayer. And then secondly, the character of those who prayed. And so we have the content of the prayer and the character of those who prayed. In our catechism, there's the answer to the question, what is prayer? And prayer is offering up our desires unto God for things agreeable to His will in the name of Christ, believing with confidence and with confession of our sins and thankful acknowledgement for His mercy. So it's offering up our desires unto God for things agreeable to His will. In the name of Christ, believing, with confession of our sins and thankful acknowledgement 
of His mercies. Now as we read this prayer, not all these elements will be in every prayer that we read or every prayer that we offer. This before us contains no confession of sins, yet nonetheless, it serves as a beautiful model. First off, everything that they will say in here, everything that is spoken, everything they speak to God will be shaped by what God said to them. So everything they say to God will be shaped by what God has said to them in His Word. When we look at the very first line, Lord, You are God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. You notice if we go over to Nehemiah, in Nehemiah chapter 9 and verse 6, Nehemiah 9 and verse 6. Notice the parallels here. You alone are the Lord. You have made heaven. The heaven of heavens and all their hosts. The earth and everything on it. The seas and all that is in them. And you preserve them all. The hosts of heaven worships you. And then also we see a remnant and an echo, if you will, of Psalm 146. In verse 6, coming off of verse 5, whose hope is in the Lord his God who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them. It's interesting in light of this, in verse 7 of Psalm 146, the Lord gives freedom to the prisoners. <coughs> so they begin this prayer addressing God. Lord, You are God who made the heavens, the earth, and the sea. Now the English Standard Version, I think, does a good job of here showing the, the slightly lesser used name that is being spoken here by the people in prayer. And it's translated here in the ES, in the English Standard Version, it would be Sovereign Lord. Sovereign Lord who made the heaven and the earth. It's the same type of construction that we see in the Septuagint in, in Jeremiah chapter 4 and verse 7 when he says, Ah, Lord God. Lord God. That combination of Lord and God is a is something that is not used with a great deal of frequency. It does show up several times through there. But when we look at, at what's given for us here in, in the New King James, there's nothing wrong with it. But notice, Lord, you, and R is in italics. Again, it's another word that's been added. Lord, it literally, without the italics, Lord, you God. Which doesn't sound like good English. But the fact of the matter is, it's saying Lord God. It's saying Sovereign Lord. 
Now, why am I drawing your attention to this? It's not a, a lesson in, in translation or anything like that. I'm bringing this to your attention because of this. It's a full confession of their belief in God's absolute control over all things. All of the universe and all that comes to pass, which, which would even include their current distressing situation. See, it's not one of these pop-type Christian, quote Christian, ideas of, well, it's, it's all the good things. All, all the good things come from God. Yeah, all the good Not Nothing bad would come from God. Nothing distressing would come from God. Well, they acknowledge that this situation is from God. And so that this God is over all things, over all the universe, over everything that comes to pass, no matter what it is that comes to pass. And this is what we mean, especially sometimes we don't give, we throw out terms and we don't give definitions very well, at least I don't sometimes. But that's what we mean by the sovereignty of God. That He is absolute control over all things, all of the universe, and all that comes to pass. So they begin their prayer, and as they do, they acknowledge that God is the Lord of all creation. Now right off the bat, we see two doctrines that come forth, which they have come to embrace and find comfort in. Lord, you are God who made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all is in them. By the mouth of your servant David, it said, Why do the nations rage and the people's plot a vain thing? Kings of the earth took their stand, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. So the first thing that they're clinging to here is the sovereignty of God. You know, there are, are some people, uh, and, and I believe that there are some who truly are believers, but they rail against the idea that God has 100% sovereign control, complete control of everything. Because the thing that sticks in their mind is, well, how can man have freedom? How can man have a free will if God is 100% in power? And while I know that pronounced a conundrum in some people's minds, the problem is, once again, that you forget the creator-creature distinction. How God works these things out is not how we work them out. How God has thought through all this before time is not the way that we would think about it. But yet we keep trying to say, get in the box, God. Here's the box. Get in it. And we need to realize that that's sometimes what we try to do. Try to make God like us. If there were things that were out of God's control, 
what would you want them to be? What were those what would be those things that you would want God not to control? I mean, you can look at the weather. When you understand about the weather, it's not out of the control of God. It's just that the weatherman can't figure it out. And the reason they can't figure it out is because they don't control it. And they've got these silly models that they use that give them about a 50% accuracy on a five-day forecast. <laughs> and guess who's using models very similar in design? Those who are telling us that we're in an existential threat by climate change. Those models have not been accurate because they've been forced to come up with ideas and answers that have been pre-programmed for them. That's a whole different thing to get into. But if God was not in control of all things, what, what is it that would make you feel good about Him not being in control of? Some of you younger What's, what would be the word? Coming to your adulthood who are getting to that point where soon you'll be driving. I want you to consider something. If you're driving a vehicle and you're traveling at 60 miles an hour, which is a mile a minute, and consider you take your eye off the road for one second. In that one second, you've traveled 88 feet. If it continues, if you go three seconds, one, two, three, you've gone the length approximately of a football field. Now, what part of the vehicle is it good for you to relinquish control of for three seconds. Knowing that you've traveled almost 300 feet. Or let's put it the other way. You're a passenger in the vehicle. And the vehicle speeding along at 60 miles an hour, which on 95 is not speeding. It's plugging. So you're the passenger in this vehicle. What part of that vehicle do you want the driver to let go of and not pay attention to and not be in control over? those holding to God's sovereignty, it allowed them to rejoice in the fact that their enemies were under the control of God. They say here, let's look at verse 12, for truly against your holy servant 
whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined beforehand to be done. Oh, they were free. And they shouted against it and they said, crucify him. But in doing so, they were doing and fulfilling the predetermined plan. It was all under the control of God. So they understand that even their enemies are under that control. So they, they rejoice in the sovereignty of God. And then secondly, they also the doctrine of creation. Because as creator, he has a creation. And as that creator, he is sovereign over that creation. So they make it a point. To say that this is all part of what we take great comfort in. For even the enemy has been created by God. Been under God's control. There is in this content of the prayer a speaking of God's word back to him. Seeing that revelation is also under the sovereignty of God. So you see here back in verse 25 who by the mouth of your servant David has said, why do the nations rage? And the people plot, a vain, plot vain things. The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against His Christ. So they, they quote Psalm 2 verses 1 and 2 for not only from the Holy Spirit in working with David did this psalm come forth, but also what comes forth now from the Holy Spirit is the final application of what was being written at that time. Now yes, you can read Psalm 2 and to some degree at the time it's written it deals with the difficulty that David had in the first years of his kingdom, of his ruling because not everybody wanted to come together. So yes, there is a little bit of that but... The greater meaning is pointed to the king of kings. And now note how they clearly stated it at the end of verse 27. Against the Lord and against His anointed, His Messiah, as against His Christ. So by the Spirit of God, they were led to see that this Old Testament passage was again speaking to them of Christ. Now something happened during the trial of Jesus that often goes unnoticed. For notice in verse 27, For truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together. Well, if you look to Luke chapter 23... I'm going to begin reading at verse 6 just to give it in its, keep it in its right context. Jesus has been arrested. He's been handed over to Pontius Pilate. In verse 6, when Pilate heard of Galilee, he asked the man 
If the man, he asked if the man were a Galilean. As soon as he knew that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at that time. Now when Herod saw Jesus, he was exceedingly glad, for he had desired for a long time to see him, because he had heard many things about him, and he hoped to see some miracle done by him. He questioned him with many words, but he answered him nothing. And the chief priests and scribes stood and vehemently accused him. And then, then Herod, with his men of war, treated him with contempt. Here's the Gentiles. Herod, with his men of war, treated him with contempt and mocked him. And of course, here you have the Jews also, the chief priests and the scribes, vehemently accusing him. But the Gentiles, his, his soldiers, treated him with contempt and mocked him and arrayed him in a gorgeous robe and sent him back to Pilate. And notice verse 12. That very day, Pilate and Herod became friends with one another. For previously, they had been at enmity with each other. They had come together. Pilate wanted Herod to do something with him. Herod didn't want to do anything with him. He sends him back to Pilate. See, they conspired together, and they conspired together for sending Jesus to the cross. So that's why you see here, as we come to Acts 4 and verse 27, your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together to do whatever your hand had set beforehand to do. This is brought to their minds once again by the Holy Spirit of God. But we can't go far here without once again the sovereignty of God coming to the forefront. And here's the prime illustration of how God can have complete control and still have, and man still have his freedom. Herod, Pontius Pilate, the Jews and the Gentiles, all involved in this, had 100% freedom. They could do whatever they wanted to do. They were not being impelled to do anything except act according to their own fallen nature. Which sometimes you have to understand that that means even though we have freedom of will, the will is not free because it is under the bondage of the old nature. It is under the bondage of sin. And so therefore, man has the freedom to make a choice, but guess what? He's always going to make the choice that's wrong. Always going to make the choice that leans to sin. And so Herod and Pontius Pilate and the Gentiles and the Jews, they all do what they want to do. But in doing what they're doing, they did exactly, exactly what God had chosen to have done. That is, by their rebelliousness, they were doing what God had decided beforehand would happen. That's it, to do Verse 28, whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. Trying to break off the chains, the authority of God's reign. They were only accomplishing God's predetermined purpose. 
As, as Dennis Johnson wrote, God rules supreme not only in Eden's pristine perfection, but also in the horrors of Calvary. All right, very quickly then, the second part, the character of their prayer. You notice in their prayer they ask for nothing but what His will and His power has performed, promised to perform. They said, now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to Your servants that with all boldness they may speak Your word by stretching out Your hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of Your holy servant, Jesus. They were seeking to have God's will and power being joined together. The second thing we see, they responded quickly to their duty. An adversary had threatened, and they do not act carelessly in the time of danger. While not terrified, say they craved the work of the hand of God. You see, you can read Psalm 2 and you can understand that this raging going on, it tells us he who sits in the heavens laughs. Well, God can put it off and say, they're trying to do something they can't do. But for us, we don't have that authority. We don't have that power. We don't have that viewpoint. So we must have to take the threats that come our way with a degree of seriousness and not laugh them off. But yet at the same time, we're not terrified because we know we are in the hand of God. And thirdly, we note the worthy character. Uh, to see just this. Their petition was God-centered. You notice as you read this, they didn't ask for personal protection. They didn't say, Oh Lord, make it safe for us to go out and speak. They didn't ask for unchanging safety. Oh God, put a bubble around us. That no matter where we go, we'll be alright. What did they ask? They asked for boldness. Boldness, for courage. Not arrogance. My friends, we need to get honest with the way that we speak because I think a lot of times the craziness of social media is bending over and blending in and we respond in 150 characters or less in our words that are not seasoned with grace. We take on, we see people like Doug Wilson and others who, who use the world's language and respond in a worldly manner. And it makes no impression and cannot be used by the Spirit of God. Our weapons are not carnal. They're spiritual. So therefore, we should speak like people who are endowed by the Spirit of God, not the Spirit of the world. So much has happened. So much that people do Anonymously. Anonymously. That is, they're, they're behind their computer screen so they can say anything they want to. They're tapping out on their phone. No one can see them. 
They can even use false names. But that kind of mentality where you speak that way is not speech. Go back and read Colossians 4 and verses 5 and 6. They ask for boldness and courage, not arrogance. Courage to continue on in the face of real and dangerous threats. And they prayed for the church. The church's mission. They prayed about the church's mission to the God of the church's mission. And so their first response to the situation was prayer. It wasn't, hey, we need to get Peter and John into some counseling now. They may have some, some leftover uh, problems they need to deal with. Or, you know, hey, it reminds us, it's a good time to start a prison ministry. Not that that's a wrong thing, but... Or, hey, you know, in light of this, we may have more of this going on. Let's elect a minister of restored cripples. They didn't do any of that. The first thing when they were presented with the problem is they prayed. They prayed. They prayed. They didn't look for a handout from the government. They didn't look for this to come to help them. They went to God because it's His church. And they prayed. They prayed what? That the Word of God would go forth, which means the truth would go forth. Is there ever a time in our country's history that we need truth to go forth? It's in. It's here. Is there a time that we're facing some threats? Certainly. But that's not the time then that we retreat. We pray for more boldness. Not arrogance, but boldness. Boldness to what? That the name of Christ continue to be proclaimed. Why? Because there's no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. And if that voice is silenced, the world never hears of its only Savior. That is, as we look on an earthly level, these leaders tried to stop it but all they did was encourage it and encourage people to look to God. So now, let me finish with this. Stop looking at Washington and, and say, look what they're doing. Stop looking at Raleigh and say, look what they're doing. Stop looking at Asheville and other areas like that where they seem to be clamping down on religious expression. Stop it. Stop it and see what they're doing and look at who they're trying to stop. A God who knows exactly what they're trying to do. And they're trying to undo what He's already done. You don't think the sovereignty of God is necessary for us in these days? Think again. And rejoice that somebody, by the power of the Holy Spirit, had the boldness to say to you, there's no other name under heaven by which you must be saved. Let's stand together for prayer.